Whether you were born in the South or transplanted here, we all discover the region in our own time. Often, it takes leaving, and sometimes it takes returning. Regardless, we're willing to bet that these discoveries changed you and how you see the American South. But what if those discoveries also changed the region itself? You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Today, our theme is discovery. Join Lola's Eric Eli and Flip Wilson as they meditate on what happens when the South gets Columbused. Turns out, that process of discovery reveals much about the region and its foodways. And the guy in the mash shells, land ho! Chris, what does that mean? <laughs> so that means he sees land. I said, well, pull over. <laughs> so that's America. You guys are going to pass right by. You don't even know America when you see it. I said, that is America. I said, look at all those spacious skies. Those amber waves of green. Dig that purple mountain's majesty. I bet there's fruit out there on the plane. Big holiday in America that day. Big holiday called not having been discovered yet day. All the Indians on the beach there celebrating. They got sandwiches, six packs, three or four bags of whatever it is they're putting in the pipe. Chris leans over side of the ship, he says, hey, yo! Yo, where is this? Fine little Indian broad standing on the beach said, Why? What's your name? Where you want to come around here and have ships? He said, My name's Christopher Columbus. I'm out discovering. So I'm going to discover America. I'm going to discover y'all. Little Indian broad said, We don't want to be discovered. You can't discover nobody if they don't want to be discovered. You better discover yourself away from here. I'm certain you're all familiar with Flip Wilson's excellent treatise on the discovery of America. Christopher Columbus ends up in America, meets a young Indian maiden, and my favorite section is when the little Indian maiden tells Chris, you can't discover nobody if they don't want to be discovered. Well, we've come to learn by now that you can indeed discover people, whether they wish to be discovered or not. In fact, what I would like to talk about today is the discovery of the American South and what it has meant for me, what it has meant for the region, and what it will mean for the nation moving forward. My own discovery of the South has come in fits and starts. I was born and raised in New Orleans, and I remember specifically deciding to go to school in the Northeast because I wanted to get out of the South and see the rest of the world. What I hadn't realized at that point is that I had never really lived in the South before. That became clear to me when I took a job in Atlanta to work at the Atlanta Journal and Constitution and got a chance to see close hand how different New Orleans was from the quote-unquote South. And then there was the Southern Foodways Alliance, which was my real introduction to this region, and I came to understand something that I was linked to a bunch of people who I had not known before and had not really claimed as such. SFA has made me claim my Southerness proudly, despite the fact that, of course, being a Southerner means you are part of a large and dysfunctional family, and it's not always clear that all the members of this family have the family's best interest at heart. Now, in between these two events, I came to write a book on barbecue, Smokestack Lightning, 
Adventures in the Heart of Barbecue Country. And in the course of writing that book, I had one of those experiences where the harder you work, the luckier you get. A friend of mine, Orson Watson, had gone to college at Vassar. He met a woman there named Ripley Gullivan, who wrote an excellent senior thesis entitled In Xanadu Did Barbecue. This thesis traces the history of this food in a national context, but there also is a contradictory sub-theme running through the work. While on the main stage, if you will, Ripley is talking about how the country began to cook on grills and cook outdoors. This was something that happened in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, in part as a result of changing architectural styles, gas rationing during World War II, and the increasing inclination to entertain at home rather than to go to public parks and other kinds of institutions. Of course, in that context, what Ripley is really talking about is weenie roast and hamburger cookouts, the kind of things that Southerners look at and say, that ain't barbecue. That's just grilling something on the pit. But something else Ripley discovered in that treatise. She found examples of barbecues taking place in the late 1800s and early 1900s in Georgia and other places around the South. And so, contrary to what she was saying about the nation, she was also pointing to the fact that in the South, there existed the tradition which, for the most part, was unknown above the Mason-Dixon line. I came to realize that the exception to this Mason-Dixon line rule was the fact that black Southerners, as they migrated to the northern cities and to the Midwest and even out to California, they brought the barbecue tradition with them. And in that way, we created a northern urban barbecue sensibility that had not existed prior to that. When I say I had to discover barbecue, I attribute that in part to a kind of Creole arrogance. New Orleanians are very proud of our food and the idea that there's something about food that we don't know is a thought that has never really occurred to us. But barbecue for us back then meant barbecue ribs and some chicken and some sausage, usually on Fourth of July and other family occasions. But when I was on tour with the Wynton Marcellus Band, I was working with Frank Stewart, an excellent photographer. We were in Wilson, North Carolina. Everybody was bragging about North Carolina barbecue, and they were talking about how good the barbecue was, in particular at this place called Beals, spelled B-I-L-L-S. Well, they brought us this barbecue from Beals, and it didn't seem like barbecue to me. It was whole hog barbecue, and it had been sort of chopped up, and there was vinegar sauce, et cetera, et cetera. And there were ribs as part of it, but ribs cooked in the context of a whole hog are very different from the ribs that you get when you cook ribs as ribs. And I didn't want to be rude, but it didn't really seem like barbecue to me. I had a similar experience in a place called Hell's Half Acre in South Carolina. Hell's Half Acre is one of those places that William Least Heat Moon might have referred to as being off of a blue highway, the small state highways that you get on the maps that nobody travels anymore now that we have an interstate. But the truth is, I'm not even sure that Hell's Half Acre is on anybody's highway, blue, green, or otherwise. But when I went there, everybody was talking about the barbecue that Ricky Scott was serving. The Scott family would barbecue only once a week. It was whole hog barbecue. We got there in time to see them slaughter the hog and to cook this whole hog barbecue. And this was something I had not seen, certainly, in my growing up in Louisiana. And the sauce that they served with this hog 
was a vinegar-based sauce, not at all like the Kraft barbecue sauce or any of those other thick, sweet sauces that are laden with liquid smoke that you get in the supermarket. This was something totally different. I began to realize something that even in the South, there are many Souths, or as the Bible says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Or perhaps as John Shelton Reed says, barbecue in the South is the closest thing we have to the cheeses and wines of France. You travel a few miles and things totally change. At the heart of what has created the modern South and Southern culture is isolation. We are so far away culturally, geographically, politically, and intellectually from New York and the other capitals of the country that we developed our own approach to life that was not attempting to be like New York or, for that matter, attempting to be like Europe. In fact, I remember at a point when I was in Atlanta and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution hired Bill Kovitch, a great editor from the New York Times. He'd been the Washington bureau chief. And he was attempting to make that newspaper a quality publication in the mold of the great publications like the New York Times or the Washington Post or other similar newspapers. And local folks, people who'd been reading the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for generations, had these bumper stickers, and they said, we don't care how they do it in New York. I hated that while I lived there because I was interested in the possibility of expanding the conception of what could be done in the South. But I realize now that there's an extent to which the fierce regionalism has meant that the culture of the South has remained very much in and of itself and therefore not so influenced by outsiders. In Flip Wilson's telling of the discovery of America, he finds a very early strain of this attitude of distrust toward the outsider. First mates at Chris, they're hostile. Chris say, yeah, and they mad too. Yeah, but we're going in there anyway. That's America. They can't keep us out of there. Usually, when we think about Southern isolation, we think about it in the context of the Civil War and this notion that because of the issue of slavery, because of the defining issue of this nation, which, of course, is race, because of these things, the South had become isolated. But, in fact, the roots of Southern isolationism go far deeper than that. In her new book, Vittles, spelled V-I-C-T-U-A-L-S, Ronnie Lundy gets at the heart of the contradictions in the American attitude toward the South. She focuses on Appalachia, and that is quintessential in terms of this American view of the South as being something of the other. Think about it. Why did they name the show The Beverly Hillbillies except to immediately and automatically conjure visions of the Hatfields and McCoys? people eating possum and raccoon and all kinds of things we wouldn't eat because we're regular Americans and we go to the supermarket and buy steaks. But beneath this conception of these people and this region is the real heart of the contradiction about the American attitude toward who these people are and were. Ronnie writes, The Ulster Irish came to make up the majority in the mountain regions and were used to quote-unquote tame the West. They had been harassed by the English in Britain, so they were anti-establishment. Their fighting spirit was lauded in the American Revolution, then pilloried in various myths of impenetrable culture. Their skill with a rifle and ferocious fighting spirit were lauded when they won the Battle of Kings Mountain during the Revolutionary War, 
But later, when industrialists and developers wanted the land they lived on, these same traits were characterized as uncivilized violence and presented as proof that these people, like the natives they had vanquished, were uncivilized stewards of the land. In my own hometown, we had a parallel situation with the American Purchase of 1803. The people in my city weren't particularly crazy about the idea of Americans coming in. We had perfectly good languages. We had a perfectly good attitude toward life. This American type A personality in the sense that somehow they were going to turn New Orleans into a profitable colony was fine provided it didn't interfere with good food, good drink, good music, and the kind of sense of life that has defined what New Orleans is like even today. I fear that may be changing, and New Orleans' changes in this regard may indeed reflect changes that are happening throughout the region. Here's that donor music. Today, Whole Foods Market introduces us to Roy Milner of Blackberry Farm. Milner worked with Sam Bell to set up Blackberry Farm's brewery in 2010. Tennessee's not a region that's been widely known as a mecca for craft beer brewing. We wanted to shine a light on the fact that you can make world-class beer if ingredients and processes are done responsibly. And using the things that are seasonally happening here, our menus are seasonal, our cookbooks are seasonal, and we run our brewing program the same way. We have very hot summers, we have very cold winters. That helps with some of our fermentations. We don't use a lot of manipulation in the way that we make beer. We lean on old world traditions and a lot of our climate and our ingredients to bring that to life. Cool things that are happening in the South, we can produce something of quality that we can be proud of. When you next visit Whole Foods, look for Blackberry Farms Spring Saison. Your purchase supports the promise of craft brewing, just as Whole Foods Market supports this podcast. Eat real food from Whole Foods Market. Part of what the discovery of the South has meant is that it is no longer necessary to travel to the South in order to enjoy Southern culture. Particularly in the area of food, not only is Southern food available all around the country, it is popular all around the country and indeed may be the definitive American cuisine of the current era. I've been spending most of my time in Los Angeles, I believe, and there are plenty of places that brag about the range of bourbons they have on their menus or the quality of their biscuits or their fried chicken or their barbecue. The same is true in Hipster Brooklyn, in Washington, D.C., and all of the places that previously one might have thought the idea of accentuating one's southernness might have been looked down upon. Southerness is now looked up upon, even if southerners themselves are not held in higher regard. I think in particular Rodney Scott, whom I met in South Carolina initially, but whom I've seen most recently in Santa Barbara, California, and in the airport in Los Angeles on his way to Australia. So you don't even need to go to South Carolina to get something as emblematic as Rodney Scott's South Carolina barbecue. What does it mean that the nation has now discovered its South? 
part of what it means is we are being observed in ways that we've never been observed before. And there are people among us reporting on what it is we're doing in an attempt to explain these phenomena that are interesting to them in terms of our culture. Now, social scientists refer to this as the Hawthorne effect, the notion that once the observer comes into a community in an attempt to report on how that community lives, the community begins behaving differently. And therefore, there's the real possibility that what is being reported on is not actually what happens in the absence of the observer. I think about this often in the context of what happens when food TV people come to town. And what you know is that if the food TV people come and interview you, you got a good chance of getting famous and having more people come to your restaurant or perhaps even getting your own TV show. So you get these situations where you have these leading questions like, well, y'all really put a whole pound of lard in them beans? Yes, we put a whole pound of lard in them. Well, you really cook them all day? Yes, we cook them all day. And in that way, the interviewer is confirming what he or she may already think. But what does that have to do with what the person being interviewed actually thinks? Even if we're not on television trying to please some reporter, we have a similar effect even in everyday life. A Missouri-born Santa Monica resident was on his way to New Orleans recently, and he asked me where could he get the best shrimp and grits in New Orleans. It was an interesting question because shrimp and grits is not a New Orleans dish. We have plenty of shrimp, we have plenty of grits, but the idea of putting shrimp and grits together is something that occurred in the South Carolina Low Country. Yet, you can find many versions of this dish in New Orleans because it seems so Creole and seems so appropriate for us. The sense is that it has now been adapted by us. Or perhaps we have adapted it because it is expected of us. Similarly, a friend of mine, a New Yorker of Haitian descent, was a chef at a very famous Creole restaurant. And he bragged to me that he's making a Creole gumbo. And it's going to be very authentic because he's putting andouille sausage in it. Well, andouille sausage is not Creole sausage. Andouille is the sausage of southwest Louisiana, of the Cajuns. But in part because of the Cajun food craze of the 1970s and 80s, people come to New Orleans expecting to get Cajun food and expecting to get andouille sausage and expecting that andouille sausage is traditional for us which is to say, if you go to almost any quote-unquote Creole restaurant in New Orleans now, you will be served andouille sausage. Because restaurants survive in part by catering to what people want. Do regions survive in the same way? Is the South remaking itself to be more of itself or to be more of what is expected of it by outsiders? One recently acquired fact about my hometown has put all of this in much sharper focus for me. The modern carnival tradition, or Mardi Gras as most folks refer to it, was not founded by French Creole people who missed the celebrations of their home in Europe. Rather, it was founded shortly before the Civil War by a group of transplants from Alabama. So forget about French and Italian mask balls. Think instead of the Cabellian de Rakin Society, some unruly folks from Mobile, Alabama. What's striking to me is that 150 years later, these Mobile misfits had become carnival royalty. In fact, they viewed themselves as so much a part of New Orleans carnival royalty that when the Texas oil men were coming to the city in the 1960s and 1970s wanting to be a part of these organizations, 
they were not allowed to be a part of them. Because somehow these recent outsiders were insufficiently inside to be a part of what the more distant outsiders had come to call their own. Put another way, these Southerners from America had become Creole in the context of New Orleans. Now that has been a big part of what has allowed New Orleans to maintain its culture for generations and centuries. The number of outsiders coming in was small enough or gradual enough that it was possible to civilize them thoroughly before others came. There's a typical story you hear in New Orleans all the time where some guy will say, I came to New Orleans for jazz festival carnival and I extended my stay and then I extended my stay some more. And then I just went back home and got my stuff and brought it to New Orleans because this is where I really belong. So for generations, New Orleanians have been civilizing outsiders, taking the great unwashed of the world and turning them in the kind of folks who know how to behave properly at a crawfish ball or at a second line. This has been our work. It's the kind of thing that we've done for the nation without asking for any kind of payment or any kind of recognition. It's what we do. In the wake of the federal levy failures in 2005, when our government failed us both in terms of the quality of the construction of those levies and in the response to the people who were drowning in the waters of Hurricane Katrina, a lot changed in our city. First of all, most of our people left the city, were evacuated, and many did not come back. While the city's population has been estimated to be as much as 80% of what it once was, depending on who you believe, 50 to 100,000 black New Orleans have not returned. What that may mean for the city's culture moving forward is indeed profound. Profound in part because it has been accompanied by another fact. The desperateness of the situation in New Orleans eventually meant that people from all around the country were coming to our city's aid. New Orleans became something of a domestic peace corps, meaning people could go to a place that was exotic and interesting, feel that they were doing something good, but also be able to call home and be on the same time zone and not have to pay international rates. This influx of outsiders has continued even though most of the Hurricane Katrina recovery has been over for a while now. What happens to our culture when so many outsiders arrive and there are relatively few insiders to teach them? That same problem is confronting much of the South now. If you look at any list of the fastest-growing cities in America, the specific cities will change from time to time, and they're not always in the South. But most of them are in the South. Often these people are coming merely for the weather because of the fact that as they age, they no longer have the kind of fortitude and strength necessary to endure a northern winter. They don't have any particular interest in becoming Southern. That's a very different story from the other one you hear, which is about some northern guy or girl who comes to a southern university, falls in love with a southerner, and before long they're saying y'all and eating grits and acting very much like us. But with a large influx of people coming in who have no particular interest in the South and no familial connection to the region, what does it mean for the continuation of the culture in a way that is reflective of who we are and not reflective of some generic national norm? My concern is not with immigration. I have no opposition to it. 
In fact, it doesn't bother me when people choose to move across state lines or even when people choose to move across national borders. My concern is when the influx of outsiders will lead us to have that same indistinguishable blob of strip malls and shopping centers and highways and high-rises that will mean we will look exactly like every other place in the country. We will sound exactly like all the other people in the country. We will eat exactly what all the other people in the country eat. We will listen to the same music. And in short, we will no longer be distinguishable and no longer able to contribute our distinctions to the national whole. Let me illustrate my point. The great urbanist Jane Jacobs was born roughly a century ago. And her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, was largely about her opposition to the work of Robert Moses. Robert Moses was an urban destructionist of the mid part of the 1900s who thought that every American city needed a highway to go through the center of it. And it didn't matter how many people had to be displaced or how many historic buildings had to be destroyed. It was necessary, in his view, that we have this transportation system to lead us, apparently, from one suburb to another, the city in between, be damned. So much of what we talk about in terms of urban blight and the destruction of the urban core has less to do with the notion that poor people, particularly black people, didn't want to live in the cities anymore. It has more to do with federal finance destruction of the places that people did want to live. This notion that there was a one-size-fits-all solution to the entire nation is exactly what Jane Jacobs was writing against. Her idea was that local people could decide how to develop or redevelop their environments in such a way as to maintain a response to specific needs of a particular community and also maintain the cultural distinctiveness of those communities. But ever since Manifest Destiny, The goal of this country has not been merely to subjugate the entire nation, but to ensure that we all speak the same language and that we all act the same way, and that distinctions between us are minimized. It's a whole lot easier to sell everybody the same car and the same hamburger than it is to cater to regional taste and regional specificity. The usual model of colonization is that people from a whole other part of the world, a whole other country, who often don't look like you and don't act like you, come to your nation and colonize you. And in that way, there's no doubt in your mind that you've been colonized. Suddenly you're speaking someone else's language and you're paying them taxes for the privilege of doing so. In the context of the American South, we may not even realize that we've been colonized. We may not even realize that we're being subsumed into a national whole, into a national norm not entirely of our making. I'll give you a case in point. Recently, I was in Atlanta, and I dined in two new developments in old buildings, Pont City Market and Crog Street Market. Both of these developments represented adaptive reuse. The use of old buildings that were too large for their previous purposes cut down into smaller spaces that allowed several smaller businesses to come in and operate side by side. And thus walking into these buildings and having this range of options for shopping and dining meant that they were exciting in a way that certainly prior to the redevelopment, they were not exciting. It seemed to be the perfect thing for a city like Atlanta where they had these kinds of buildings available. The problem is there were similar developments taking place in other parts of the country at the same time. In New Orleans, there's the St. Rock Market, and in Los Angeles, there's the Grand Central Market. 
all with roughly the same concept. I like all of these places, but the truth is these developments are more alike than their cities are alike. This concept of what to do, what kind of adaptive reuse should take place, is somewhat of a national concept now. It does not necessarily reflect the local taste and local culture as fully as we might think. Not long after the levee failures in New Orleans, I served on a panel about New Orleans culture with the playwright, John Biganet. He said something that night that has stayed with me until now. People were asking whether or not Hurricane Katrina would destroy New Orleans culture, and he said, the great enemy of New Orleans culture is American culture. Cannot the same be said of the South? So much of our national expression, our food, our music, our dance, has come from the South. Where would American dance be without James Brown? What would American music be without Robert Johnson and the Delta Blues? Where would American food be today if we didn't have grits and fried chicken and biscuits on every menu around the country, from greasy spoons to white tablecloth restaurants? In his 1952 novel, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison wrote a chapter that helps illustrate the place of the South in American culture. As you may recall, the story's protagonist is a young black man who works in various places, including at Liberty Paint, a fictional company that used the slogan, Keep America Pure with Liberty Paint. Our protagonist had the job of taking a gray substance, putting a few drops of a black substance into it to create the company's signature product, Optic White. It was a paint that looked whiter than white itself. Perhaps our job as Southerners is to be those incongruous drops of black paint, which, when placed in the national mix, actually makes this nation more American, actually makes this nation more of itself. I focused on the American South and its regional distinctiveness, but I don't mean to de-emphasize the extent to which Southerners are part of the American cultural mainstream. There's more that unites us with our countrymen than there is that separates us. Part of what it means to be an artist, to be a writer, to be a musician, to be a painter, to be a cook, is that you study the work of the great masters. You learn what they have done, and perhaps during your apprentice period, even attempt to emulate it, but ultimately, you want to use their examples as a means of constructing yourself. It's a model that I think we who are interested in Southern culture and its maintenance, its permanence, and its vitality need to bear in mind. I think, for example, at the end of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, when he had brought thousands and thousands of people to the march on Washington, he ended by saying that these people needed to go back to the places where they were from and bring this movement more forcefully to the places that had sent them there to march on Washington. So I think what we need to do is go back to where we live and rediscover what it is. We need to go back to our hometowns and rediscover who we are. This is urgent need for work. And it's work that our country needs us to do. It's work that our nation cannot understand the importance of unless and until we teach them.
Lolas Eric Eli is a writer and filmmaker, born in New Orleans and based in Los Angeles. This podcast was inspired by a talk he gave at the 2007 Taste of the South event at Blackberry Farm. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Robin Minitor. To listen to more music from this episode, go to our website, southernfoodways.org gravy. Coming up, a taste of the next Gravy episode, but first. The Oxford Film Festival recently screened Otho Turner, an SFA documentary film about the Mississippi Fife and Drum Legend. Awarded Best Mississippi Short Film, that Otho Turner documentary will soon tour the state with other festival honorees. If you can't catch it on the big screen in Mississippi, don't fret. SFA films, including Otho Turner, are streamed freely on our website, southernfoodways.org. While you're online, consider becoming a member. Membership dollars support all SFA work, including this podcast. Next time on Gravy, what happens when a 19th century German immigrant to Texas falls in love with the Chili Queens of San Antonio? Join us as we explore how chili powder became a building block of Tex-Mex cuisine. That's next time you're listening to Gravy. I'm John T. Edge for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, not war.